Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. That's, yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, and I'll say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield, and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you surely man. It's the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. We're into December and Borussia Dortmund, one of the top teams in Europe over the last few years, are stuck right at the bottom of the Bundesliga table after another defeat the weekend. 11 points they have now from 13 games as against the 29 points in the bag for Bayern Munich. They're not going to win the league, Ken, but if they don't turn this around pretty soon, we could be looking at one of the great implosions of a big European club. Yeah, I mean, it already is in a, in a sense. I suppose they, they've still got time to turn it around. I mean, if you look at the team that's fourth in the table at the moment, it's Augsburg. They've got, they've lost six out of 13 games. So it's clear that there aren't too many very consistent teams there. There's always the possibility that the teams ahead of them are also going to blow up. Um, You know, I don't see anyone there who's going to be winning and winning and winning. So they might be able to get back. They might be able to get back to the Champions League. But already you've got a situation where, I mean, I remember I was at the German Cup final last uh, May and it was a pretty close run thing. Went to extra time. Bayern against Dortmund. Bayern ended up winning 2-0 um, uh, with a couple of late goals. And afterwards, it was Mats Hummels. Uh, you can see how depressed the Dortmund players all were. They, they were, you know, lying in the field. It, they looked completely shattered. Hummels then putting on, I think, his Instagram afterwards, you know, we're going to win a title next season. I don't know what it's going to be, but we're definitely going to win one. You know, this is... And, it doesn't look like they will. No, and even more recently, when they played each other in the league about a month or so ago, and not even a few weeks ago, the gap in quality was there. It was, it was, it was clear and obvious that Bayern were the stronger team, but Borussia were, were still incredible. I was watching this with you, and we were marvelling at how high a technical level it was compared mm. to a lot of the Premier League teams, even the top-of-the-table Premier League matches. And Borussia did not look like a team who uh, who are bottom of the league or plummeting towards the bottom of the league, which yeah. is what they are now. Absolutely, um, and I think it. I think you know, looking back, that 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 final was a big moment because it sort of. I mean, they've obviously had to deal with Bayern taking their players, 
Lewandowski now plays for Bayern. Goethe obviously moved to Bayern a while ago. There was talk then over the weekend that part of the deal which involved Lewandowski moving to Bayern was that Bayern would not come back and bid for Marco Royce. That Borussia Dortmund had said, OK, we've actually got an offer from Real Madrid for Lewandowski. We're going to sell Lewandowski to Real Madrid uh, rather than wait for him to join you on a free. How do you like them? How do you like them apples? And Byron said, "Oh no, no. Um, how about this? Let him join us, and we promise never to try and sign Marco Royce." Uh, and they said, "So they shook hands on this deal." This was reported over the weekend. Um, but since then, of course, Bayern Munich have started talking about Marco Royce almost every week, and they they keep mentioning his release clause. Apparently, he's available for twenty five million at the end of the, this season, twenty five million euros, which is a re- unbelievable. I mean, it's like eighty percent of Adam Lallana, <laughs> you know, for for one of the best players in Europe. Um, so what you've got is this constant. It's essentially it's impossible for them to keep what they were doing was this kind of magnificent defiance for a while. You know, their Bayern had an, have announced these financial results today, um, over five hundred million euros, which is three three times uh, Borussia nearly. Um, they sold one point three million shirts, which is more than all of the other teams put together. Um, so it's 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 obviously an unequal battle. And then when your men keep defecting and joining the opposing team, there comes a point. There comes a breaking point, and it seems as though they've they've hit that breaking point. Uh, Bayern have done their work very well. We're going to chat to Rafa Longenstein about that and Jonathan Wilson is going to be on later to discuss Sunderland's robust tactical approach and successful tactical approach against Chelsea right now. It's time for Kennedy's Report on Sport. So I suppose we'll start with John Delaney, Owen. Uh, Because we still haven't heard from the FAI any clarification of just what it was that went on last week. Uh, The Sunday Independent um, contacted the FAI's law firm to Bellow Law, uh, and spoke to uh, Dean Dunham, a senior partner there. Um, he explained, the firm has already made its position clear. Now, remember, the issue here is that uh, this was the firm that ended up sending a statement to the Guardian telling them our client's uh, position is simply that it is not him singing in the video, when, of course, it was him, um, a fact of which John Delaney must have been aware. I mean, he was the one who was singing the song only a few days earlier. Um, so how did this come about? Um, well, uh, the law firm tells us independent. This firm has already made its position clear. We were provided with a statement from Mr. Delaney's team on his behalf. The statement was then relayed to the Guardian. As such, no misrepresentations were made by this firm. However, it transpires that there was some confusion between Mr. Delaney and his team, but we cannot comment on this as we were not privy to the conversations that took place. So they ask, are you angry about this? He says, I have to assume there was a genuine mistake and that the client is telling the truth. I have to assume that's right because that's the professional thing to do. If evidence was put before me that I was purposely misled, I'd be very upset. But it hasn't been. And I've been given a reason why it happened. And I've got to make the assumption that that is true. That reason being the confusion. There was confusion between uh, Mr. Delaney and his team, as, uh, as Mr. Dunham puts it there. But we haven't. We still haven't had the confusion explained. Who, you know, who got confused? What was the confusion? So what's clear there from that statement is that the the well confusion that was referred to by Delaney in his statement of, uh, of last week is the same. He's given the same reasoning to the lawyers. He's mentioned a confusion to them involving. He mentioned something about confusion. <laughs> it was a very <laughs> confusing confu- sentence. There is confusion. Sort of confusion in the sentence itself. 
Um, but no, th- this hasn't been explained. This hasn't been explained, and no- nothing has been said. And I, and I suppose the, uh, uh, the policy seems to be just not to not to comment any further on this unfortunate business. Mm. Um, and and I suppose just leave it all hanging as to how it was that uh, this law firm was instructed to say something that wasn't true um, to the Guardian. Uh, I don't know if there's going to be if there's going to be uh, internal um, consequences in the FAI because it appears that at the very least somebody made a very serious error, a very serious error that resulted in embarrassment for the for the association. Um, I don't know. Should we, should we watch out for a resignation or or a redundancy? Maybe that's on the cards. Who knows? Um, but certainly we don't. It doesn't seem as though we're going to hear anything more. Uh, and, and of course, there are no Ireland games for a while. No, um, which just means that Roy Keane's not in the news. So this again, once again. I mean, the last the last couple of times, um, the last couple of shows that we've done, uh, there's been a kind of a big Irish football story uh, breaking the following uh, day. And this in this instance, Roy Keane leaving Aston Villa. Um, very chilled out stuff uh, from uh, the club or from Keane saying, you know, just felt that with my responsibilities uh, to Ireland um, it was just it just all became a little too 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 much and Martin O'Neill did another video this this video was he'd come on in leaps and bounds since the last video the last video which you you call looked a bit like a hostage yeah. uh, you know pleading uh, pleading uh, for you know the, the ransom demands to be met uh, this time uh, Martin O'Neill much more relaxed uh, he got a proper FAI sponsored uh, backdrop as well, and uh, chatting away in an avuncular manner, uh, just to the camera. Because I mean, I, I guess maybe he was talking to somebody, but it yeah. seems as though he was just speaking directly to you, the viewer. I'm thinking maybe this one had a, this one might have had an interviewer with the questions cut out. I don't know, but the, because the one you talked about, which was around the Roy Keane, the last Roy Keane. At the end of the Roy Keane story, <laughs> was uh, was very much. I am reading out this official statement, and that's it. Yeah. Um, well, this time he, he was... He, he, an explanation that he offered was that maybe Roy Keane was suffering a little bit. He said, I'm not his keeper. He used that phrase that Kane used about Abel. And he said, uh, you know, I don't follow him around. He's always kind of keen to emphasize that Roy Keane is his own man. Um, and he said, you know, he, and he didn't have a summer holiday. He kind of went from working with us and that kind of straight into Villa and he and Martin O'Neill's view is that sometime either side of Christmas you're going to have a crash you know you're going to you're going to run out of energy it's going to be a low time with, without having had any time to recharge the batteries mm-hmm. um, Daily Mail have a different take on it which is that there was a some kind of a fight between um, Keane and some senior players I mean when I say fight I don't mean a physical fight I mean a, a bust up a row um to be quite honest, I would be amazed if there hadn't been uh, some kind of uh, ongoing sort of simmering. I mean, what else is Roy Keane there to do if not to keep the players on their toes, let's say? You know, we know that his his approach to doing that has usually been the more kind of confrontational approach. Has usually been that, you know, we, there isn't enough intensity here. We aren't seeing enough. We aren't seeing... I believe that you can give more. You've got the feet of a League of Ireland player, as I said, to a League of Ireland player, former League of Ireland player. Was it Colin Healy? Yeah. Yeah. So you, you, you would kind of assume that not all of the senior players or the junior players or, or any player of any age, you know, 
we're one hundred percent delighted to see Roy Keane every day. Although there's no, I suppose the point that you raise there is the pertinent one every day because there's been no stories at all about any issues with with Ireland players or any bus ups there. That could be in part because it's, I mean, Roy Keane, there's just no time to be getting involved in that kind of stuff, really. And uh, presumably everybody can be nice and civil to each other for a few days at camps here and there. This is a, we, we've probably given a lot less thought to Roy Keane's role at Aston Villa. Mm. In fact, I'd say I've given almost no thought to Roy Keane's role at Aston Villa at all. Mm. But now that it's actually finished, you, you, you think back and go, well, yeah, now that's a proper number two role where you, you, where you have to have a defined role every single day, grind your way in, get get into work, deal with the players, and that's going to be tested probably a lot more than it would in the international arena. Absolutely, I mean, just every just the fact that it's every day, and you know, um, a lot of reports that you know he had to the commute. You know, he he was still sort of living back home rather than near rather than Birmingham. You know, this is kind of commuting a lot, uh, which obviously is never good for people's energy levels. But you know, just stepping back away aside from the energy question, I mean, that was kind of the that was more or less what Martin O'Neill said. It was more or less what Keane's statement said as well. Look, you know, I've, it's, I found that it's become too much combining these two jobs. I mean, I remember in the summer he was talking about, well, you know, with the Ireland job is obviously part-time. You know, maybe there's more involved in it. And obviously he's had other things going on lately. He's been doing the book tour and um, there was the Ireland, the most recent Ireland trip, obviously there was a few things happening around then which were out of the ordinary. Um, he ended up having that little press conference where he obviously wasn't in a wasn't in great form yeah. uh, and not not delighted to be asked about this thing that had happened in the hotel but you know Roy Keane was well aware of what this job would entail when he took the job which was only in the summer you know he knew exactly he knew exactly how far away the place was and how he what he'd have to do to get there and what's involved in the job and the number of hours that an assistant manager is expected to work he knew all that mm-hmm. so how is it that five six months later he's suddenly thinking you know, according uh, on the basis of the statement that he put out, that oh, you know, I, I realise now that this is too much. You know, I find well, it that can happen. I mean, it can happen. I suppose you, it can, you, but you, I, you, you might know, think something through, and then the reality of it is only you can only experience it when you're actually in the middle of it, and maybe it, it's a little bit more than what you expected. Yeah, uh, I mean, it could it could be, but you know, there have been these stories now. Villa are saying you know everything everything was fine, everything was fine there. Um, you know, with, with Keane, I mean, with the approach that he's that he's has tended to have, it's you know he's quite he's been quite a judgmental kind of figure on the train. You know, he demands very high standards. You know, he he talks about them himself. You know, when it, whenever he's been sort of uh, people have suggested he's maybe too hard on players, he would say, if asking for the best is a crime, then I'm guilty. You know, that's all I want to to push people to. You know, I'm it's not I'm not here to you know to sort of um, uh, tickle people's bellies, you know. Talk to them about how great they are. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in trying to push them towards their own limits, you know. Get them, and and his resp- and, and his way of going about that has often has led to frequent problems with players. I mean, players who maybe feel that they're being set a standard that they can't live up to. Players who maybe feel as though, you know, there isn't really anything they could do to. You know, if, if 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 a player ends up in that situation, if the player ends up thinking, you know, this guy, there's nothing I can do really that will impress this guy, then what's left to them? Well, there are some. I mean, there are some characters who emerge in the book. Is Damien Delaney another guy he had? Um, I could be wrong on Damien Delaney, but Damien Delaney was cost the, me a lot of goals. That's it, what he said. Right? Yeah, yeah. And he, but he, he seems to he says himself that he went harder on the Irish lads sometimes. Uh, yeah. And particularly, I think it was at Ipswich. 
because I, I just thought they could take it. But no, no particular logic behind it. Just I presume that they. I don't know why he thought that they'd be able to take unfair criticisms more than anyone else would in football. Well, this is a, this is a has been a theme as well, and it's something that he talks about as well. Uh, and he will he will say. Look, I'm har- I'm hardest on the ones that I've got most the highest regard for. It's the ones that I don't say it until I have to worry about it because essentially th- those guys I just don't think they're you know I don't think they're worth anything. I, I, there's no point in even talking to those guys. Whereas you know, say at Man- when he was at Manchester United in the final years of his playing career, um, you know, Rio Ferdinand talks about this in his in his recent book how uh, you know players like Fletcher and O'Shea. Uh, would often be the brunt of criticism from Roy Keane. Uh, he would argue this is because he he thought they were guys with potential, and he really needed to drive through to them the importance of you know giving absolute the max all the time. According to Ferdinand, when Keane was gone, Fletcher and O'Shea seemed to grow several inches. You yeah, know, it was I'm like not sure about that they were breathe, They were kind of breathing yeah. out, going, "Oh, you know, we can we can relax." I mean, I, I can kind of understand the psychology of it. You know, in a sense of you, your hardest. I mean, if you like, say, a demanding parent, you know, some parents are hard on their own kids. You know, it's a case of, "Come on, you know, I want you." To, they wouldn't necessarily dream of saying "boo" to someone else's kid. You know, but to their own kids, it's kind of, you know, you gotta work hard. You gotta, you gotta be this. You gotta be that. Um, doesn't let's say it's the tiger tiger model of parenting. Mm. It doesn't always work out the way the parent intends. I'm not I mean, sure about Rio's. I'm not sure about Rio's uh, interpretation of that. No, he was he was there. You know, I was in that Man United dressing room. Yeah. But I, O'Shea was asked about, or Keane was asked about that uh, in one of the interviews after the book, and he's like, "Ah, look, O'Shea and Fletcher. I think they were okay." Yeah. I think the boys were okay. Yeah, but he he would say that though, wouldn't he? I mean, in fairness, he's hardly going to say, you know. To, to be honest, when I, when I look back, maybe it did get to them. Well, neither. I mean, there's, there's a scene in, in and we're talking Keane's book again here. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not relying on Rio Ferdinand's testimony. Okay, let's leave that to one side. But Keane, I mean, doesn't he doesn't he say at one point in the book um, where he's describing this scene of the the controversial Middlesbrough video? Uh, and the players have, have seen what it was that he had to say. And he's like, you know, that wasn't so bad, was it? You know, Fletch, have you got a problem with that? Have you got a problem with that? What's Fletch going to say? <laughs> okay, in that situation, not much. No, <laughs> oh, no, no you know, to problem. be honest, it's spot on. You know what I mean? Like, so it's, it's hard to know. Everyone has, has different views. I do think that uh, it can be difficult to, to accept um, kind of a, a relentless, relentless criticism, especially from someone who you probably have huge respect for, someone who's got really high status. You know, if they seem to... Keane can say now, well, I always had their best interests at heart, or I always... I was only doing it because I believed in them more than the others. But that's not always apparent at the time, you know, to the, to the sort of recipient of this constructive criticism. Mm. You know what I mean? It's... If if they totally if they always understood that yeah, as he maintains he did then maybe for I think it could be more the 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 other leader the other alpha male types in the dressing room the, your Rios your Ryan Giggs I think they might have been the guys happier that Keane was gone because they could really assert their dominance whereas the other Fletcher and O'Shea are pretty yeah. I, I'm 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 assuming, making a lot of assumptions here Ken but I'm assuming they were a bit more easygoing to begin with Louis Van Hal Louis Van Hal uh, is another man who didn't have any summer holiday if Martin O'Neill's explanation of what went, ha- went on with, with uh, Roy Keane at Villa is true, then uh, Manchester United's manager is set for uh, uh, an energy crash right about now or maybe in a few weeks uh, and is complaining about the festive uh, schedule in English football. Um, I'm, I do not agree with this. I can't change it, but I don't think it's good for the football players that they play within two days another match. In the December months, it shall be like that. We also have families. I also have a wife and kids and grandchildren, and I can't see them this Christmas. 
But I want to work in the Premier League. I have to adapt and I shall adapt. But I don't think it's good for players or for their families. Um, which is a which is a good point. I mean, yeah. it's it's bad. You know, it's terrible. I've never understood the reason for having... Well, I know the, the reason is that you have to play these games and the, the season's a certain length. But the idea, oh, it's it's tradition, it's Christmas football. I mean, why not keep your Stephen's Day, your Boxing Day fixtures to use mm. uh, the, the Premier League uh, terminology... And just get rid of the one a few days. Just get rid of one of the fixtures. Mm. So you're not you're not totally because everyone enjoys. Or maybe get rid of the one on Stephen's Day and keep one a few days later. Maybe get rid of the ones. Together. Get rid of the ones in January. The sort of first couple of ones in January. Just take a little break then. I mean, the thing is that this is obviously a relic of the time when, um, uh, you know, this is this is like the you know football the time when football was for the fans. Crit. <laughs> uh, Sort of Christmas, everyone's got a couple of days off. Or, you know, it's one of the only times a year that, that you know the working man actually has a couple of couple of days. The mills are closed down maybe for a couple of days, and we can pack in a couple of football matches. You know, and it was okay for the players to do that because it was fine to play two matches in two days. Or did they, did they play? They played on Christmas what, Day back then, and then they played the sort of next day. <laughs> so they sort of play the reverse fixtures on the, on the next day. But it was okay for players to do that. It wasn't like because I don't think it was physically as strenuous as it is now. And all, and the players could immediately after the second fixture go out in the rip roaring piss. Absolutely. I mean, you know, they they could have their they they could have their turkey with lashings and all the trimmings. You know, probably before they went out on the field, they could do all that kind of stuff. Whereas now there's this kind of, I mean, okay. The players in the other hands are co- are compensated with vast sums of money, so sympathy is always going to be in short supply. But um, they don't really get a chance to relax the same way that everybody else does at Christmas. I mean, it's kind of accepted you spend it, you take a little time off work, something that you should do. You know, even if you you love your job, you're doing a great job. Still, you should take a little bit of time off work. Maybe spend a little bit of time with your family. That's all good. They have the summer holidays for that. Well, yeah, they've got a, they've got a couple of weeks in the summer holidays. Although not if you're Louis Van Gaal, he went straight from the World Cup to managing Manchester United. Um, I honestly don't know how he managed to do that, but I suppose he took the job. There's no, there wasn't anything he could do. An important win for Liverpool. Yeah, it was, uh, and obviously the main story surrounding Stephen Gerrard, who was who only played the last 15 minutes. Um, big moment, really. It's the first time, the first time that's happened. I mean, this should it shouldn't be a big deal. It should be something they've been doing all season, you know. Um, uh, Gerard is instead the player, the outfield player at Liverpool with the most minutes on the field in the league, um, the most minutes overall played. Only Mignolet has actually played more than Gerard, which is ridiculous. He's 34 years old. Um, but as you could see when they were playing against uh, Stoke, it's difficult to defend an argument, to sustain an argument that he should be left out permanently not because he's been so good but because these other guys are not good mm. um, nobody has nobody has managed to really make a persuasive case that they're better than Steven Gerrard I mean maybe they're about the same but when you add in the history of Gerrard as a player the fact that he has done these things which you know if, if, if it's a tiebreaker situation are you going to go with the guy who's you know repeatedly um done great things for Liverpool or a guy who's never done anything. Um, I mean, it's, it's a dilemma because obviously all those things are in the past. It's a bit like Robbie Keane's uh, 65 Ireland goals. You know, they are all in the past. It's not like he can bring those 65 goals on the, on the pitch with him or is, if they're, they're of any use in the, the next game that he plays. But they are. They do make it difficult for him to, to drop him. Um, 
Apparently, he's now been offered a new contract. Yeah, that's what Rogers is saying today that he's he's he has been offered a new contract, and there hasn't been any issue between himself and his skipper. One hundred and fifty percent no, he says. Yeah. When asked if there's any um, any problem, so Stephen Gerrard wants a new contract. He's been offered it, so presumably he'll take it once it's all ironed out. So there's another at least season and a half of this dilemma of what of how to get the best how to extract the last few drops out of Steven Gerrard yeah well look they've got they can't go playing him in every game because they're just going to get a load of bad performances what the, the problem with an older player is not that they lose the ability to play football but that, that, that they lose the ability to repeat these performances again and again yep. can't do it I mean look the greatest players it's always the same Didier Drogba for instance um, I think is still capable of playing a world-class match. But he can't do it. He, he can't do it more than once a month. You know, I mean, Giggs would, would have said the same thing coming towards the end of it. Skull said the same thing. You can still do it, but just not very often. And like Lampard at Manchester City has played, I think, two hundred, just over 200 minutes, minutes in the league. Who's had a better season, him or Gerrard, who's played five times as much? I mean, Lampard has, has made important contributions to... He scored, he scored again on the weekend. He hasn't actually played a full 90 minutes in the league. He comes on as a sub and he plays 25 minutes. And he's able to do that. And he's able to do it well. Really, Gerrard should be in the position where he's able to do that. He, that's, that's what they're looking to him to do. But because they don't really have players who are convincingly able to carry the team in his absence, he ends up playing all the time. Um, I think now that he has actually been left out, It'll get easier for Rogers. You know, when when this happened, it was immediately, oh, there's a bust up. You know, and I'm sure Jared wasn't happy about it. It's humi- he that he would experience that as a humiliation, regardless of how necessary. You know, in in the rational part of his mind, he might be able to say, well, look, you know, I've got to accept that I can't play every game. There was also a big uh, to do about his. It was his 16th anniversary of his debut. Yeah. So there were like 20 pages of Stephen Jared's the match program. And, and you know when you when the, he's there standing on the sideline doing his stretches, thinking this is all ending now. I'm you know my I'm dying as a as a football player. Sixteen years, sixteen years I've been doing this, and now I'm not good enough to start every game anymore. You know, and the, and the you think of the depressive spiral of thought in into which that puts you. Even if on one level you're saying yes, boss, <laughs> yes, Mister Rogers, I understand uh, you know why you're leaving me out. There's also the kind of a, a the irrational sort of core of your being is thinking this is a disaster. You know, I can't believe that this day has finally come. So not a happy, not a happy time for him. Where did Arsene Wenger? He sounds a bit like Stephen Hunt, actually. In what way? Uh, Stephen Hunt calling out the GAA players who like to fancy themselves as as uh, mentally strong and ultra committed sportsmen. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a Sunday Independent column that Hunt wrote yesterday. He said they wouldn't know what hit them if they came over and tried to be Premier League. In fairness, I think Stephen Hunt was largely uh, focusing his ire on... Joe Brody. On Joe Brody. GA pundit uh, Joe Brody. For, for provocateur. Were, provocateur for those who aren't familiar with his work. But uh, a few GA players are a little bit annoyed with, uh, with Hunt. But how is Wenger similar to that? Well, it, Arsenal beat West Brom 1-0 with a fantastic uh, uh, Stanley Matthews, Stan Mortensen link up from uh, Santi Cazorla and Danny Welbeck, uh, who nutted the the winning goal for Arsenal. Traditional English football goal alone. Um, this didn't stop the Arsenal fans, however, unfurling banners. Uh, <clears throat> Arsene, thanks for the memories, but it's time to say goodbye. Enough is enough. Wenger out, etc. Arsene Wenger, uh, I can do my job. I do my job with total commitment. I would like you to live with me and see for seven days what kind of work I produce, and you will see that it is total commitment. So... 
Am I hurt by any of the criticism? Honestly, no. <laughs> Says Arsene Wenger, who I think is absolutely enraged by this criticism from these. I, I, I'm sure he wouldn't call them plebs, but you know, <laughs> it's uh, it's tough to take sometimes when people don't realise what's involved. And it's not just for a manager; it's not just wrestling, as, as Stephen Hunt said, but it is total commitment. One more quick story, if you want. Uh, William the sheep. Oh. Huh? William the sheep. William. Uh, the under twenty World Cup is in New Zealand, so the New Zealand organising committee have have commissioned a sheep mascot, uh, saying we appreciate that around the globe New Zealand is associated with sheep. So we thought, why not embrace that? But add an extra twist by making him the coolest black sheep ever—a young Kiwi with cheek and attitude. <laughs> it's I honestly can't believe that a marketing professional is still speaking this way in twenty fourteen, <laughs> but. Check out William the Sheep. He's the coolest black sheep ever with cheek and attitude. He's essentially a black sheep with an orange, yellow, and purple uh, haircut. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That is. Uh, I is agree with the market, marketing dude there. Poochie the dog <laughs> is the uh, is going to be the mascot for the Under-20 World Cup. You're the worst, worst character ever, Teddy. Thanks, Ken. That's the end of your report on sport. Reluctantly crouched at the starting line. How are you, lads? Engines pumping and thumping in time. I had a couple of experience of international tournaments. The green light flashes, the flags go up. So we were confined to a hotel with nothing to do. Churning and burning, they yearn for the cup. They Back then, we had no mobiles. There was nothing there watching. There was no laptops, no internet, no Facebook, Twitter, none of that back then. To ring home, you had to queue up for ages with a big wad of cash. But there was one afternoon, there were seven of us in a bedroom. I'm not going to name any names, right? And there was... Suggestion by someone. I don't know how to phrase this, but why don't we have a competition where how to phrase it? Pleasure ourselves. We pleasure ourselves. We pleasure ourselves. Fella who can who can who can maybe complete the job first is the winner. We pleasure ourselves. And I swear to God, myself and another fella left. Five lads um, competed with one another. We pleasure ourselves. And there was a couple of golf putters there, so we just put a ball up and down all day long trying to hit a Ribena ball. Raphael Honigstein is good to go. Raphael, let's talk about Borussia Dortmund, who are bottom of the league after another defeat at the weekend, which is really incredible. And based on their talent pool, on their playing squad, where should they be in the Bundesliga? Well, I think they should be second, and they should be a lot closer to Bayern than the uh, 22 points gap would suggest right now. Uh, I think they are in a fake position, in a false position. Unfortunately, uh, positions and results develop their own sort of momentum and then create different reality. And you could see in the game against Frankfurt just how insecure, uncertain and uh, sort of out of sorts they looked once that first goal had gone in from Frankfurt within four minutes or five. And that's what out the moment. Um, and the next game against Hoffenheim is a really tricky one. And if they don't win again and you know you're looking at them going into the winter break in a relegation zone and uh thinking about that for the next uh, six weeks which will be which will be a disastrous position to be in yeah it's really staggering i'm trying to think of parallels with other leagues and other clubs i mean i suppose leeds united's descent was pretty quick and they're in the news again today for the wrong reasons but there was a lot going on in the background there uh this just seems so sudden is there any one explicable uh, reason for it I don't think there is. I think it's a really a combination of lots of small things, maybe one or two bigger ones that we've seen before with Dortmund. It's nothing new that 
they are a, t- a team that need to be totally on their game. It's very demanding, the system that Jurgen Klopp employs. And we've seen in the past in the Bundesliga that if they're just a little bit short, they tend to not get results. And they have been far off the pace, um, certainly as far as Bayern were concerned, over the last two years. So you could say this is just a continuation of them losing ground domestically. But of course, they never had 16 other teams ahead of them as well. Um, as they have this weekend. So I don't think you can just explain it uh, with the usual um, sort of things like missed goal chances or, or individual mistakes. I think it's perhaps something a little bit bigger. And uh, that's, I think, where the real worry is, that perhaps Klopp, like, like many managers who work in such um, high-energy, demanding, um, full-throttle fashion, maybe has run out of steam a little bit and maybe his team who've been through thick and thin who've been pushed all the way just don't respond as well as they have done in the past that is my worry and I think that's the real worry within the club as well that regardless of what happens this season I don't think they will go down they should finish at least mid-table maybe in the Europa League I think the real big worry is that this this sort of momentum this story between club and the team might be coming to an end. Yeah, and I think the tone of Jurgen Klopp's comments before the Arsenal game during the week was, or last week I should say, was a little bit different from what we've heard from him before. But I, I do wonder about this, Rafael. I mean, the mystery here is when we look at the Champions League results compared to the Bundesliga results. So they've won four out of five in the Champions League um, and look quite impressive at times in that. Is this maybe have something to do with the fact that this is a team that knows it can't win the Bundesliga, but maybe can win the Champions League, and that, that might have something to do with how their attitude is better or their performances are better, or maybe they can they find they've got more to give in, in the Champions League rather than domestic football. Well, I think there's, there's definitely a possibility that there is a mentality issue. But unfortunately, as you saw in the, in the latest game at the Emirates, their league form had, had caught up with them, and that game was shocking in many ways because Dortmund looked like a shadow of the side that they were in the first game, but also a shadow of the side that we that we were used to, to seeing them um, in certainly in Europe. So I think it's no long no long sort of no longer um, just a mental difference in preparation. I mean they absolutely need to win every single game now. There is there isn't even a you know winning the title doesn't even come into it anymore domestically but they're unable to do that so i think that as an explanation only goes so far i think also um with the greatest respect to the teams in in, in their group tactically they're as strange as it might sound are not quite on the same level as, as most of the opposition in in the bundesliga and they just can create problems to dortmund that uh dortmund haven't been able to overcome uh, it's it's been a problem for them, as I said before, for a couple of years now that they don't tend to to get the sort of the small, the niggly wins that you need to if you want to to win. Now, unfortunately, apart from not getting the win, they're getting beaten, hmm. and uh, you just have to look at their goals tally. They're not scoring. They're conceding cr- silly goals. It's all the hallmarks of a team who are a little bit in a rut and have lost themselves. I feel. Well, I mean, I mentioned Cops comments last week and. Uh... I mean, when I knew that, I, I, I kind of saw this clip. Okay, Jurgen Klopp is going to talk now about managing the Premier League. And you think to yourself, well, 
I, I mean, they always ask him this, and he always says the same thing, which is that uh, I love Dortmund. Uh, we're going to be here, me and Dortmund, forever. You know, this has kind of the, always been the tone. And it was totally different last week. I mean, what do you think? Um, do you see anything significant? I mean, he's saying, yeah, you know, I'd like to work in England. And, you know, I speak a bit of English, as you can hear. And, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great league. It's an exciting prospect to be part of. You know, this is, this is, this is a totally different message. I was very surprised the way he unequivocally nailed his, uh, his colours to the Masters, as it were, and saying, yes, Premier League is the next destination for me after Dortmund. Now, at that time, I think after Dortmund, in his mind, probably didn't mean the summer. It might still not mean this summer, I mean next summer, for him. But it's one thing, you know, speculating about the future and being nice about the Premier League or other leagues, uh, quite another to say, yes, I'm definitely going there. That, that's my next destination. So I was surprised. I know that uh, Dortmund weren't happy with um, with the way the interview went out or with some of the um, uh, conclusions that were drawn, quite understandably, I think, in my view, especially if you leave out one or two sort of half quali- qualifying sentences. But uh, he said it. And he said it in a way that, uh, that, as you said, was quite new. It also came on the back of the question before where I asked him whether he saw himself maybe doing what Arsene Wenger has done at Arsenal and uh, having a real legacy, a real era. Um, his current contract runs till 2018, which would make him 10 years in the job, uh, unheralded, uh, unprecedented almost in modern times. But he said, no. I'm not thinking about legacy. I'm not thinking about staying in place a long time. Of course, I'm happy, but uh, I just don't uh, think about in these categories. And I thought and that's really something that I hadn't heard from him before. So coupled or combined with the bad results, as I said a little bit earlier, I think there is just maybe not a, not for sure, maybe not definite, still quite open, my, open-ended, but there is a feeling that this could be the beginning of the end and that's something that we've never ever experienced before for all the trouble and all the frustration you must have had about losing players and and finishing behind Bayern and and losing the the cup final for example last year I've never seen that kind of inclination uh, in him and uh, I know for sure that the club have just as a precaution which I think is very prudent at this point have started to wonder, you know, what happens if that day X happens rather sooner than we think or that we want. And they have begun to just think about different scenarios, different people that might come in, might be available. And uh, as I said, I think everybody's beginning to realize that there is a danger, not more than that, but certainly a danger of this heading for a divorce. No such problems at Bayern Munich. Uh, Raphael, who've announced record financial results today. Things go from strength to strength there. Pep Guardiola, uh, you mentioned this book, Pep Confidential, that came out uh, quite recently, which lays bare his tactical micromanagement, really, and the demanding nature of his regime. But it seems the players have adapted to that. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. They played yet with another uh, new formation uh, against Hertha. They only won 1-0. That counts as almost as a surprise these days. Um, not a four nil, five nil, but uh, yeah, they played with um, with a midfield without width. Uh, they had four central midfielders. <laughs> One of them was Ian Robin playing almost like a playmaker, 
Um, they afterwards explained that they had realized that uh, Berlin were particularly vulnerable in the middle. So they decided to play four guys through the middle. And uh, the, the players seemed to, to seem to like it. I mean, you could say that the sheer amount of talent at his disposal sometimes make it look as if it's slightly over-engineered, <laughs> as it were. And maybe if they were just playing a, a box standard 4-4-2 or 4-2-3-1, they would, they would have similar results. But it is, I think, something very new in the grand scheme of things to see a manager who so clearly um, at the top of the tree and has such a strong team still looking at the opposition. And even if it's Hertha Berlin or some low-level side, he will always adjust. And uh, I think that combination is quite unique because in the past, I think you've seen even himself almost never change and say, you know, we are this and this is our plan and we'll stick to it. And now Bayern have become this completely flexible, reactive machine almost, which is very, very hard to play against. Yeah, I mean, I heard you kind of chuckle twice there, Rafael, when you were talking about some of these more abstruse schemes that Pep Guardiola uh, cooks up. And I'm sure there's a little bit of scepticism, at least. Oh, he's playing how many central? He's, I mean, there was talk of false attacking midfielders in the, in, in the book. So you can kind of see that, you know, there's, there's an, an element when, at which point does Guardiola sort of end up in Sood's corner um, with this over overly sophisticated tactics. But the thing that I kind of got reading that book was that actually... This is exactly what that squad needed. You've got a squad that's already won everything. They've won the treble. They've won the league a couple of years in a row. They actually need this challenge. A guy who's, who's a kind of a really obsessive coach who's going to try and do something really new and sophisticated and take as many of them with him as I suppose are prepared to go along for the ride. But they actually need that. It gives them a sense of forward momentum, a sense of still developing as a team, even though they've already won everything there is to win. Well, yeah, I would agree with that. And, of course, he has a, has a bit of a history in doing that. His last year, which was ultimately a, a failure at Barcelona, he started experimenting even more and he played a 3-4-3 three, three, and I think he played a 2-8 in one game and sort of setting his own team uh, these kind of puzzles and tasks almost because they, they looked untouchable. I mean, ultimately, it all came crashing down. I don't see that... Uh, happening in the Bundesliga there is no Jose Mourinho there's no Real Madrid who can really challenge him um, but yeah I think it is what the team needs I think also don't forget he is still coaching under the shadow of that 4-0 home defeat by Real Madrid in the semi-final to a certain extent so I think he needs to try and make Bayern more complete even more perfect even harder to play against and also, of course, some of those changes are also forced on him because he's somebody who wants all this control in midfield and his control players, as it were, at the moment, Lam, Thiago, Alcantara, um, David Alaba, even, who's been playing as a central midfielder for, for a lot this year, are out injured and Bastian Schweinsteiger is just coming back. Javi Martinez hasn't played since August. So he needs to do that to a certain extent. But I, I agree, I think... The fact that he keeps changing things helps this team to keep on their toes and to be challenged because the challenge doesn't really come from the opposition so much at the moment. All right, Raphael, brilliant still. Thank you. Cheers. That book, Ken, uh, Pep Confidential, I mentioned, written by Marty Paranau. 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 I'm sure we'll be talking in detail about sports books for the the Christmas market in the next couple of weeks, but would you recommend that one amongst the football well, you know, I mean, it's it is interesting. I think when you've got a when you've got source material, which is that interesting, 
has to there has to be something worthwhile coming out of the book. And I I did find the book to be I think a little bit of a missed opportunity. This is a guy who spends the season with well, with Guardiola with Bayern. Um and and he, and he does give I think a, a decent insight into what Pep is like, what his work is like. I don't really feel as though you got much of a sense of what was happening in the team. You got a lot of sense of Pep Pep talking, maybe talking over dinner, talking about tactics, talking about sort of the tinkering he was going to do and um, and it is a good insight into how intense, how obsessive he is uh, in that kind of area. But oftentimes, I felt the portrayal of the players was a little, a little bit thin. I didn't get a sense of what was really going on in their heads, what was happening in the team. I mean, it was just either wow, everybody loves Guardiola, until suddenly, oh, Mandzukic, yeah, he had to go. <laughs> 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 you know what I mean? Suddenly, Mandzukic is like, nah, you know. Uh, and there's a few kind of. Maybe he could have talked to more players. Although, maybe it was part of the deal. You don't do that. You don't talk to the players. But you certainly know with a book like that, it's rare that the journalist is going to come out and be in any way critical of the, the guy who's given him this amazing access. And that's true. That, that's very true. Which, doesn't mean it's, which, by the way, doesn't mean it can't be a good book, but you, you're expecting a certain tone to it then. The tone. I mean, I'll just the very first chapter is, is all Pep having dinner. Who's he having dinner with? You know, not like... Uh, I mean, Alec, imagine Alex Ferguson's having dinner with some friends. I mean, who's he having dinner with? Sam Allardyce, Steve Bruce? No, maybe not Steve Bruce. Maybe Sam. Maybe not. Not Moisey anymore. Alistair Campbell. Maybe Alistair Campbell. Someone like that. You know, the uh, hatchet man of former hatchet man of Downing Street. Um, Pep is having dinner with Gary Kasparov. Of course, of course, he's having dinner. With, and Kasparov's giving him all this wisdom. Like, you know, Pep, you don't win a battle just because you moved your pieces to the front, or you know, Pep, you attack differently from a mountaintop than you would on an open plain. And Pep is thinking, yeah, you know, I can really, uh, I can use all this. And then uh, he's talking about, you know, the new, I think it's Magnus Carlsen is the name of the current champion of chess. He's like this Norwegian guy of about uh, 25-ish in age. And uh, Kasparov is saying, oh, I couldn't, I can't beat this guy. I couldn't beat this guy. And He's like, no, no, I mean, I've got the ability to beat him, but I couldn't beat him. In practice, it's impossible. And Pep's like, why, why couldn't you beat him? And Kasparov won't answer the question for some reason. He seems kind of going red in the face. And it's like, what's going on? You know? Pep keeps saying, hey, why, what, what do you mean you couldn't beat him? You got the ability. You got the ability, Gary. Why didn't you take him on and beat him? Uh, they are in New York when this conversation is happening. And uh, Kasparov is like, um, oh, no, hang on, how does it go? Oh, no. <laughs> have, I no have I totally forgotten the story? The... The only opponent that could ever beat me, you know what his name was? Big Blue. Time. Not Big Blue. No, not Big Blue. I think maybe Big Blue did beat him, or Deep Blue, or Deeper Deep Blue. Blue. One, of, one of those things trounced him maybe back in the day. But no, the, the only opponent that could really beat him in the long term was Time. <laughs> and uh, Pep, Pep thinks, you know, I'm really struck by that. I must redouble my efforts because I have only a limited amount of time in which to show uh, my potential as a coach. So... That's that's where it kicks off. So the only opponent that could beat Kasparov, time. Yeah. Computers. Time computers. And, and, Mag- and Magnus Carlsen, <laughs> although he's never played him and never would. I mean, Ferran Andrea is another big mate of Guardiola. You know, the the head chef of El Bui, El Bui, which was the greatest restaurant in the world until he just closed it down. He's like, yeah, I'm bored with that restaurant business. I'm just going to concentrate on recipes now. You know, like if Pep was to stop coaching a team just and concentrate on developing tactics on his laptop. That's essentially what this guy did. And obviously they're kindred spirits, kindred Catalan spirits. Uh, Adria tells Pep, you know, Pep, you're more than just a great coach. You're a great innovator. 
So uh, he didn't actually add, add much to that, but you know, at least we know where he stands. Jonathan Wilson joins us now. Jonathan, lots of teams have tried and failed to find a tactical approach to stop Chelsea this season. I think Sunderland showed all you need to do is kick Diego Costa up and down the pitch. <laughs> yeah, he, he really didn't react well to that, did he? And I think yeah, between them, John O'Shea and Wes Brown did, did a fantastic job on him and, and Lee Catamull screening just in front. I think maybe we'll see other teams you know, adopt that template. I think the other thing Sunderland did really well was was to close down Tess Fabregas. That, uh, the work that Larson did in, in doing that was was hugely effective. And I guess I was picking up from what Fellaini did in, in the United games. So, you know, one of them's had 10 assists a season, one of them's got 11 goals. If you shut the two of them off, then, then obviously Chelsea are going to be, going to be neutered. Are you, uh, O'Shea was, is a funny one because he's generally not... Uh, the, the only criticism really of O'Shea over the years maybe in Ireland has been that he, he certainly doesn't look aggre- as aggressive as some centre-halves do and he's got more of a cerebral way of going about things. He didn't look too cerebral at the weekend. But has he, has he uh, driven this Sunderland sort of revival since the 8-0 defeat a while back because it all looked pretty forlorn for them at that stage? Well, I think that was always a slightly strange game. That you know, The first 35 minutes of that game, although Sunderland were 2-0 down, um, was was actually pretty pretty even, and, and um, Sunderland could have had a penalty. It should have had a penalty at two 0 down with a with a, you know, a possibly a red card for Fraser Forster. And had that happened, who knows how how it would have turned out? Then the third goal went in, and, and yeah, they fell apart completely. So I, I think anybody who sort of watched that game in its entirety, you sort of recognised that second half was the first half was pretty freaky. Just Sunderland went in three 0 down when it could have been very easily you know nil nil one one. And then you know, the second half was out of character with the rest of the season. There were then the two terrible individual errors against Arsenal, but actually a pretty good performance apart from that. And then since then, the big difference has been Pantilleman, uh, Castle Pantilleman coming in for Vito Manoni. And since then, in those three games, some of them only conceded once. And that was a, a pretty, pretty spectacular own goal from, from Wes Brown when Pantilleman actually made a brilliant save away at Palace. And Wes Brown, for some reason, <laughs> then lashed the ball in the top corner of his own net. So I think Pantelliman sort of added uh, confidence. But O'Shea and Brown together, they lack a little bit of pace as a pairing, but they, they, you know, they've been pretty good when both fit for you know, a year and a half now. And I think Catamol screening them makes a huge difference. So I, I, I think the, you've got to remember as well that the Southampton game before that, Sunderland had the second best defensive record in the league. So that game really is a, a massive outlier. Um, so I think you know, some of the problems are really at the other end of the pitch. That they they often have a lot of possession. I mean, they didn't on Saturday, but they they struggle to to create chances from that. Um, do you think that Jose Mourinho is going to have a problem with Diego Costa? I mean, he said after the game um, it was quite typical um, Mourinho reaction to you know people are saying oh Diego Costa's out of control. He could have been sent off twice, and Mourinho said ah I heard he was unlucky to get a yellow. Um, which which was his his kind of way of understating the issue, but is is it going to be a problem? I mean, Costa's now suspended for a game. Uh, more performances like that, you quickly develop a reputation. Um, suddenly, the referees might start seeing all those flailing elbows and sort of uh, cruelly stamping studs, and uh, he might end up missing um, some important games down the line. Yeah, I think that is true. But, I mean, you know, it's it, it's the old. Um the old issue that that's part of what makes him so effective as a forward that he's always sort of irritating opponents. He's always sort of getting in their faces. Um, yeah, I, I guess Wes Brown and John O'Shea are, are old enough and sensible enough not to get too riled by that. 
Um, and he's, you know, I mean, if O'Shea had wanted to, he could easily got him sent off in the first half. That if he'd stayed down when 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 Costa kicked out at him, I think Kevin Friend might have seen that very differently. And I, th- I mean, I think it's pretty well widely recognised. Kevin Friend is one of the one of the softer referees. You get away with stuff with him. You might with others. Uh, the, the incident in the second half when he um, when he caught Wes Brown, I think that genuinely was a, an accident. It was just a you think a, a, a loose flailing arm. Probably, oh, he whipped uh, his he whipped his arm straight around into Wes Brown's face. There's absolutely no doubt that was deliberate in, in my mind. Well, uh, okay. I mean, I, I, being in the ground, I, I didn't. I didn't think so. Replays. I, I think with that kind of thing, it, it's always slightly difficult. It was reckless, and he deserved the yellow card for that. I'm, I'm doubtful as to whether he really deliberately. I mean, again, you know, if he did do that deliberately, then then there's big trouble because he's had his he's had his let off in the first half, and he must sort of realise that the ref's eyes on him after that, and if he's still going into challenges. You know, deliberately to to hurt the opponent, then then that is just foolish. I, I thought it was just a, a loose flailing arm, but you know, um, but but you know, the kicking out of John O'Shea, you know, he clearly should have gone for that. Um, and, and I, I and you're right, you're absolutely right that reputation, you know, plays a big part in this. I mean, when when Sergio Aguero was booked for diving on Sunday, one of the things that people were saying was, you know, referees have to learn you know, how players behave. Aguero's not a diver. And therefore, on that basis, he, you know, he shouldn't have booked him. I mean, he shouldn't have booked him because it, you know, it clearly was a foul. But you know, past record is is taken into account. And I think you know, we, we mentioned Lee Catamol there. I don't think there's any doubt that if Lee Catamol had done what Kosha did in the first half, he would have gone because he's still living on the reputation he got, and deservedly got, two years ago. And the fact that he's cleaned up dramatically in the last sort of year, 18 months, is sort of yet to be recognised that you see Catmull going to challenges and you sort of you know he's going to get booked for for them when other players might might get away with it so mm. so yeah reputation is a big thing and you know five yellow cards in um how, well, how many of those 13 played, games have you played, played 10 of, 10 of those 11 of those yeah it uh, is is clearly a lot yeah i mean i do enjoy watching Diego Costa but um i suppose eventually it might end up costing his team but the, i mean the, on the broader point about chelsea they have actually played some magnificent football this season i mean i watched the the game they were involved in last weekend, the first half of that, it was absolutely sensational. I mean, I know Mourinho um, drew lots of attention to that afterwards, but he was telling the truth. It, re- it really was brilliant stuff by then. They looked like a potentially uh, great side. And there's absolutely nothing else that's any good in the league at the moment. The league, would you agree, Jonathan, has, as it approaches its halfway point, has been a bit of a disgrace. I think disgrace is a bit strong. I mean, I, you know, Chelsea are, are playing really well and have a, the squad that when they play well, they play really, really well. So, so you know, I think in any season they they would be they would be top probably at the moment. Um, but then, yeah, you know, the issue is the rest, and it seems to be a, you know, a season of, of mass transition that all the other potential challenges have, have got their own individual problems. Uh, I think, yeah, I think we'll see City and United improve as, as the season goes on. I think Arsenal will, will plod on as they always do. Liverpool and Spurs have obviously been been pretty disappointing, and, and Everton haven't quite hit the standards of last season. Um, on the plus side, you've had Southampton playing far far better than than anybody expected. And I, I I guess if if it was a team other than Southampton, a team you could imagine possibly sustaining a run, it wouldn't feel that Chelsea were quite as distant as it does at the moment. But but yeah, you're right. The of the seven teams you think are probably occupying the top seven places, one of them has played well, and six of them have played pretty pretty badly so far. 
Yeah, it's interesting, John, that we were talking to Raphael Honigstein just a few minutes ago about Borussia Dortmund and how it is at their bottom of the Bundesliga while not struggling uh, to the same extent in the Champions League. And he made the point that, well, their Champions League opponents aren't as good as a lot of Bundesliga sides that uh, they come up against week in, week out, which is quite quite interesting because we're talking about the likes of Arsenal and Galatasaray, Anderlecht, you know, decent European clubs. Um, have the, Has the Premier League struggled and other European leagues struggled to... Uh, key pace with the tactical juggernaut that is the Bundesliga. Well, that's that's an interpretation. Certainly, I, I'm I'm pretty skeptical of that. I mean, I think um, Dortmund, you know, the start of the season they caught Arsenal at a, at a good time when Arsenal were, were particularly weak. Um, you know, you could equally turn around and say Arsenal gave them a bit of a chasing on Wednesday and probably should have won by more than two nil. So. Those two games even out, yeah, the majority of Bundesliga sides are better than the majority of sides in Belgium and Turkey. I don't think any of you would dispute that. In England, though, as well? In England? Well, I mean, English, I English know, football is so, I mean, so much... Recent, recent results would suggest not. I mean, the last four games between German sides and English sides, English sides have won them all. So, I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, Bayern are clearly better than anything. Well, I say clearly better. I would say that if Bayern played Chelsea, Bayern probably would win. I don't think it'd be a massive margin. If you then start pairing off second v second, third v third, I'm not sure there'd be, be that much difference. I mean, I, I'm thinking here of a. I read something last week on Spielverlagerung, which is a German uh, blog, which um, you know has some pretty interesting, a lot of long form, quite technical stuff about tactics. Uh, this was a more general sort of piece by them, where they were arguing that English football is tactically primitive, and that it's essentially uh, a rich league which throws money around. And has no idea how to play football at the highest level. I, I guess I semi agree with that. I mean, the no idea issue. It's how you phrase that. I think is is the issue. I, I think the, the the Premier League suffers by being rich, and, and that is a big problem for it. That the general wealth in the Premier League means that the the you know the basic reaction to a couple of bad results is sack the manager, spend a bit more money, and there's never any continuity. There's never any attempt to to establish a philosophy. And you see, actually, the teams who do establish the philosophy, Southampton, Swansea, massively overperform. And that really ought to be a lesson for everybody else. And yet everybody else still seems to go around splashing money around, massive throughput of players. Every summer, six or seven players come in, six or seven players leave. And, and so, as a result, necessarily you get less sophisticated football. Perhaps Germany is, is wiser in that regard. The notion that... yeah, I mean, what, what do you mean English teams don't you know, have no idea how to play? Because these English teams aren't made up of English men. Yeah, Louis van Gaal doesn't understand how to play football. That's clearly not true. I mean, Louis van Gaal is a man who made Bayern what they are today. He laid the foundations for it. So, yeah, I, I'm. I, but I, you know, again, if you go back and say, is there an issue in English coaching? Well, I think we'd accept there is. There's just not enough English coaches, and we know that you know, there's roughly ten times more coaches in Spain, qualified coaches in Spain, than, than there are in England. And the FA is taking steps to improve that. I think there's more than can be done, but you know that 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 issue has been been recognised. So, yeah, the, the notion that there's no idea how to play tactically in England, I, I'm sceptical of. The idea that, that money sort of inhibits uh, tactical progression, I think, is, is broadly true. Yeah. But you could equally argue that's a weakness of the Bundesliga, that the, the wealth is so concentrated in one club. Yeah, no, you definitely uh, can, and indeed we are trying to do that all the time. But uh, there's one other question I had, which is just arises from something that we were talking about earlier on uh, on the other podcast, which is to do with the... Uh, it's a kind of a cultural question, really. The image of, for instance, English rugby, the English rugby union team, is of um, uh, an extremely muscular bunch of men with very little imagination 
who tend to try to win the game through the simple application of brute force that their opponents can't match. This is a, a kind of a stereotype that's grown up around the English rugby team. It's, it is their identity on, in this sort of uh, global rugby firmament. They are the, uh, the big, strong men with no imagination, who, and that's, that's their approach. Is there, is there a kind of a core value to English football? Is there a kind of a sense that you could say, well, this is what English football is, is meant to be about? It, you know, if, if you understand what I'm, what I'm trying to ask here. Um, I mean, I, I guess there's two issues there. One is that you know, what those values are have been, I, I think, uh, occluded pretty significantly over the last sort of, 10, 20 years, largely because there's so few English players playing at the top English club. It's very difficult for, the, for that identity to be sustained. That so many, so many young English players, are, and I think it's probably a positive thing, uh, you know, they're coming into contact with ideas from foreign players, foreign managers, that, that the notion of Englishness, uh, yeah, as as a way of playing football, it's pretty hard to get somebody who's only played with English players and or played predominantly with English players and played predominantly with English coaches. They just don't exist anymore. Um, if you go back beyond that, then I guess the culture of English football is pretty similar to the culture of English rugby. It's about passion and determination and strength and physique, and and those are cultural values which go back, I guess, you know, several hundred years through. You know, just the, the cultural life of, of England. Yep. Jonathan, we leave it there. Thanks a million. Cheers. Thanks. I think actually, I take Jonathan's point there about there, Louis van Gaal is not an Englishman. There are lots of non-English players playing in the league. But I think there is still a quality to most Premier League football matches that is quite English, or what we would have grown up with uh, in terms of British football, and that is a fast pace, a high tempo, sometimes too high, sometimes so full-hearted that it, it, it's all going a little too fast for the skill level to keep up. And of course, some of the best players in the world do play in the Premier League and some of the best teams are in there. But a Premier League match does look different to uh, a, a La Liga match or a Bundesliga match. And I think despite the globalisation of the game, uh, part of the appeal, I think, of different leagues is they, that, that they do still have distinct qualities to them. I think it's because of the crowd. It's because of the stadiums the and because of the crowd. Yeah. The stadiums in England are usually um, tight enough into the field. I mean, maybe they're, they're, they're slowly changing now. I mean, there's a new stadium, so a new stadiums now. But they're tight to the field. They've got roofs on them because it rains all the time. And um, it creates a much more intense atmosphere. The crowd are closer to the game. And they're, also the crowd respond to different things. The crowd want to see... Uh, physical confrontations. They cheer for tackles. They cheer for clearances. Uh, they get bored when the team passes the ball around. A stadium in Spain doesn't have a roof. Um, more of a relaxed kind of an atmosphere. In Germany, they they do. It's a bit more like England, but they've also got drums and things. Like you go to they they usually have a drum, mm. and that changes the tempo. Changes the like it literally, it quite literally sets a, a tempo, which is different from what you get in. England, which is just a kind of raw or unfiltered crowd noise. I mean, this is why I think, say, the England supporters band is such a terrible idea. For it's it's against the whole idea of what a crowd is like in English football. In in Germany, you know, you've got if you've got that boof, 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 a team is kind of passing the ball around. You know, it kind of it sort of fits a bit more. Maybe the tempo isn't quite as uh, isn't as frenetic. I'm not saying they don't they run around very fast in Germany, um, but it, maybe there's a bit more thought gone into it rather than just the you know, 
let's go out there and kill these guys. Have a listen to the first show that we put out there today. Jerry Thorny and Dennis Hickey were in on rugby at the end of the November internationals. And Luke McManus is the director of a four-part documentary series, which is on TG Carr at the moment on the Galway races. We had a good chat about um, well, everything that's connected to that week of, of fun for a lot of people. So you can have a listen to all of that. And you can check out our website, secondcaptains.com, also irishtimes.com forward slash podcast for some of the other shows available. Thanks very much, Ken. Thank you very much, Owen, as well. <laughs> Thanks for listening, and we'll chat to you soon. Take care. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.